You're listening to West Virginia Week, a regular podcast from West Virginia Public Broadcasting that looks back at the major stories of the week. I'm your host this week, Chris Schultz. We had quite the literary focus this week, with a conversation with the 2023 Appalachian Writer-in-Residence, as well as a conversation about Banned Books Week. We also heard about a school-turned-community center in Boone County, and as we head into the spooky season, Mason Adams of Inside Appalachia brought us the story of a Pittsburgh artist making locally-inspired tarot cards. Let's jump right in with a few short news stories. On Monday, the Charleston City Council passed two resolutions that will change the rules for media members during City Council meetings. Brianna Heaney has the story. Resolution 24 shuts down the floor 10 minutes before and after city council meetings, and Resolution 25 moves press into the gallery and establishes a credentialing process for members of the press who attend city council meetings. Council member Chelsea Steelhammers voted against both resolutions, saying they fit into a greater context of anti-journalistic, anti-transparency actions that governments are taking. While it's not completely restricting media, it is restricting their access on some level. It's preventing them from sitting um, where they have always sat. You're literally pushing them back. The bill's sponsor, Chad Robinson, defends the new rules, calling them a safety measure for staff and members of the city council. He said the council is working to make meetings more easily accessible to members of the media and to the general public. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Brianna Heaney in Charleston. Also on Monday, the latest Gold Star Families Memorial Monument was unveiled in Huntington. Woody Williams, the late World War II Congressional Medal of Honor recipient, created a foundation to honor the families of those who died serving their country. His final wish was granted this week. Randy Yowie has more. Lee Greenwood sang his iconic God Bless the USA before more than a thousand people gathered at the Huntington Memorial Arch, now also the home of the nation's 131st Gold Star Families Monument. At Williams' funeral service a year ago, friend and former Huntington Mayor Kim Wolf was reminded that he was tasked with getting this monument erected. About three weeks prior to the, his past, he said, I got a couple of projects for you. I like to have a monument down here. I said, Woody, I don't know anything about monuments. Yeah, but you know people. Let's make that happen. Grandson Brent Casey reminded the crowd that today's unveiling was not about his beloved papa. When he would say, it's, it's not about me. We are not here for me. We are here for them to honor and recognize the Gold Star families. Huntington's Southside Alliance spearheaded the monument construction. Alliance President Dan Gooding said all the work was true to a great man's final wish. Woody picked the spot that this is on. It was the last request he had, and this is the county seat of Cabell County, where he lived the majority of his life. That's the clip-clop of a not-really-riderless horse. Wolf said fellow horseman Woody Williams made a promise he'd get him on a horse on his 100th birthday. He's 100 today. This is going to be Woody's horse, and his ashes are in that. There's a little urn now. He's not looking down. Woody's here. God bless the For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Randy Yowie in Huntington. A company that took Union Carbide to court over a hazardous waste dump celebrated a favorable ruling from a federal judge. Curtis Tate has more. 
Late last week, U.S. District Judge John T. Copenhaver, Jr., in a 400-page decision, found that Union Carbide had violated federal law by creating an illegal open dump in South Charleston. In testimony last year in Charleston, Cortland's lawyer showed evidence that Union Carbide had dumped toxic substances in the landfill over a 30-year period and had not sought any permits from the state or federal government. Testing revealed the presence of contaminants in Davis Creek, a tributary of the Kanaw River. If Copenhaver's ruling stands, Union Carbide will pay for the cleanup of soil and water contamination and could face civil penalties under the Clean Water Act. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Curtis Tate in Charleston. In a statement, Union Carbide, a subsidiary of Dow Chemical, said it is working with the West Virginia Department of Environmental Protection to clean up the Philmont landfill under the department's voluntary remediation program. The Department of Tourism released its first fall foliage report Wednesday. It outlines what to expect from this year's fall colors. Brianna Heaney has the story. Fall foliage reports are made by the Tourism Department in partnership with the Division of Forestry. Jeremy C. Jones is the state forester. He says the changing colors are in full swing at higher elevation areas in the state. Lower areas are just beginning to see the change. Jones says different elements like temperature and precipitation go into an especially vibrant season, and they are lining up this year. You know, there's really no other place in the world that has a, a unique, diverse hardwood forest like we do here. Um, I think this year is going to be really vibrant, and you know, I encourage everyone to get out and, in our woods and you know, enjoy the view. The Tourism Department and the Division of Forestry will also be recommending drives and hikes each week in areas where fall colors are peaking. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Brianna Heaney in Charleston. You're listening to West Virginia Week. And now, some of our top feature stories from the past week. This week was Banned Books Week. Groups like the American Library Association encourage people to look at the books that have been banned and to think about why people attempt to remove them from public view. News Director Eric Douglas spoke with Megan Tarbett, the director of the Putnam County Library and the president of the West Virginia Library Association, to find out what it's all about. Why are we celebrating books that have been banned? Uh, in 1982, uh, they kind of got it started uh, as a response to some of the, the book challenges and uh, and protests that have been happening in like schools and things like that. The book challenges seem to be cyclical. You know, like some years they'll be really heavy and then, you know, it'll, it'll hit a lull and then it'll come back. Uh, so this was kind of like a response to that. It was a, a way to bring awareness to um, to the nation that, you know, these challenges were happening uh, nationwide, you know, in schools, in libraries. Uh, and so they called it Banned Books Week. And here we are all these years later. Big picture. You want to discuss what some of the issues or why that's happening more recently now? Or, or is it purely just cyclical and it, it is cyclical, but it, it, it is also in, uh, in today's, uh, age of all information all the time. I do think people head to their keyboards or head to people they know in, in outrage before they sometimes take a minute with what it is that's actually upsetting them, uh, and, and not kind of like sitting with it for a minute and, and thinking critically about, you know, why this particular book would be in a public library or would be in a school, um, especially with, you know, the things that people can find on the internet. Um, you know, it sometimes it feels slightly disingenuous that we're focusing so much on physical books when, you know, an internet search can bring 
so much so many more terrible things if, if that's what you know you're really concerned about but of course we we take these concerns seriously what is the response when um, when somebody wants to ban a book that's yeah you know, i mean we're not we're not talking some extremist pamphlet showing up in a in a school library this is something that's been vetted and and reviewed and researched by by librarians well speaking of unattributable uh quotes on the internet uh, my favorite and, you know, kind of my personal motto uh, is, you know, a good library has something in it to offend everyone. If you are looking at the whole of what we have uh, available in a public library or a school library uh, or, you know, an academic library, um, it runs the gamut. Like, you know, there are things I walk by that go, oh, I would never read that or that upsets me, but that's why it should be there. Um, you know, and, and every library should have a... Uh, like a procedure kind of ready for those, you know, um, and in a lot of systems, it's called like the reconsideration of uh, of materials form. And so, you know, anyone can fill it out and it asks, you know, what book, what page, why? Um, and then, you know, there is, there, there is a process, but what we are seeing right now is that some people are bypassing the process altogether. Um, I know, cause you know, a lot during a lot of these weeks, like, you know, Freedom Freed Week, and things like that you know we make a display we put out books um and sometimes you know people will walk by and go mm, i don't think i like that book and they'll take it with them and then they'll bypass the library's procedure altogether uh and go to you know a, a city council person or a county commissioner or you know the school board or they just go straight to facebook they don't go to you know anyone else they just go to their friends and uh and then all of a sudden um you know we've we've got uh We've got a, a community that is unhappy. What is the situation in West Virginia now? Our Parkersburg libraries have uh, have been dealing with some some challenges really? um, the past six months to a year. I think they're over the worst of it, but there is still you know some some challenges coming in. Um, what most likely happens in most West Virginia libraries and communities um, is kind of like the the quiet censoring. Uh, either you know a, a librarian might self-censor what they order. If, you know, they might take a second look at a book that may be on a, a best of list, but, you know, they also have to evaluate it for their community and they may just decide not to purchase that item, which is a form of censorship in and of itself. Um, or, you know, sometimes, you know, if, if a patron doesn't particularly like a book, they'll borrow it and it never comes back. Mm -hmm. So there is that form of uh, kind of censorship uh, as well. So it really is, you know, the loud ones that you see, uh, you know, on the news and some of the more quiet ones. And honestly, it's it's kind of the quiet ones that frankly are more insidious than, you know, kind of the big noise ones, because then, you know, they're happening. But, you know, when you've got a, a one person library in a small town, I don't blame them for not wanting to quote unquote, rock the boat. What haven't we talked about? You know, the, the last few years, um, and, and I, I'm very glad of this, uh, you know, as we talked earlier on, Banned Books Week can confuse uh, some people. You're like, why are you celebrating banning, blah, blah, blah. So I like that, you know, the American Library Association and the Freedom Read to Read Foundation have really moved away from like the negative of like, look at all the things people want to ban to a positive like, hey, free people read freely. Let's keep that in mind. Uh, you know, let freedom read and making it a more positive thing to have all of these books available for people. That was Megan Tarbett from the West Virginia Library Association speaking with Eric Douglas about Banned Books Week. To listen to a longer version of the interview, visit our website at wvpublic.org.
Many schools in rural areas of West Virginia have closed, leaving vacant buildings. When a community in eastern Boone County lost its elementary school, it became a community center. Brianna Heaney has the story. In 2015, Nellis Elementary School closed, leaving behind it a vacant building. Meanwhile, residents had been wanting a place for the community to meet. That's when Anita Perdue had the idea to turn the empty building into a community center. When we seen the opportunity to take something and refurbish it into something that was needed, we, we jumped on the opportunity. And thus, the barn was created, an acronym for the communities it initially served, Brushton, Ashford, Ridgeview, and Nellis. Now it is partnered with the Family Support Center to support a greater area. The center provides free items and services to the community and gives community members a place to meet. They host events, often in partnership with other government or community organizations, like a flu vaccine drive in partnership with Boone County Department of Health. Wanda Smith is here at the barn with her husband, Luther Smith, and their daughter, Noka Ryder, getting their flu shots. All five of her kids went to Nellis Elementary. Now they come here for shots, kids' sporting leagues, and even use the space for hosting family on Christmas and Thanksgiving. It's really nice. We have our, we have a huge family, so we have our Thanksgiving and Christmas here. In, in, the gym. in the gym, yes, we do. Yeah, we, we rent them every year for Christmas and Thanksgiving. Yeah. 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 Since it's been a community center, yeah. We have, what, about 30? 30, 30. About 30. Seven, I think. Barn also provides resources for the community, like free clothing, library books, Wi-Fi, free meals, hygienic products, vaccines, cleaning supplies, fitness classes, meal delivery services, and the list goes on. Dakota Smith works at Barn and helps keep everything from the clothes to food stocked and ready for the community. Uh, this is one of our food pantry rooms. Uh, it's, so we have um, two refrigerators and two freezers. Uh, we're hoping to add to that. He says the organization has a few different sources of food for families through different partnerships with organizations like the USDA, where they get free foods, and the Mountaineer Food Bank, where they get foods at severely reduced rates. So as it stands right now, we're serving between 250 and 350 families or individuals a month, and that's not quite good enough. So we're seeking to expand our funding. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, one in four Boone County residents live in poverty. Boone County was also a region devastated by the opioid epidemic, which at one point during the ongoing crisis had one in four residents receiving an opioid prescription and continues to see overdoses from opioids and fentanyl. The need's great. And, and I also think that, you know, um, you know, I'm a believer in, in God, and, and I think that that's what we're here for, is to serve one another. I really do. Purdue says that this grassroots community center exemplifies the heart and soul of Appalachian Mountain Living. Our people here, we're resilient people, and we aren't the type to wait. Um, if the opportunity presents itself and there's a need, the people feel it. They don't wait. You can find out more about the Barn Center at our website at wvpublic.org. From West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Brianna Heaney in Nellis.
West Virginia author Ann Pancake is this year's Appalachian Heritage Writer-in-Residence at Shepherd University. She is best known for her acclaimed 2007 novel, Strange as This Weather Has Been. It follows a southern West Virginia family affected by mountaintop removal. The novel has won numerous awards and accolades, including the Weatherford Award. It has also been designated the 2023 One Book, One West Virginia Common Read. Liz McCormick recently sat down with Pancake to talk about what inspired her writing. First, we'll hear Pancake read a passage from Strange As This Weather Has Been. After we came back to West Virginia from North Carolina two years ago, it was all different. It was different. But I sp still spent a lot of time up here. I didn't hunt stuff much anymore. Some of it was gone and even the plants that were left the dealers wouldn't buy like they used to. So I mostly just sat in my places. Those places where, if you sat quiet, the space dropped away between you and the land. Some of them were places I discovered on my own, but others were ones where me and Grandma used to stop. She'd make me sit quiet. I learned that young, too. And when it was time to go, she'd say, Now this is just between you and me, Bant. You and me's special place. Like the heart of the rhododendron thicket, the limbs bendy and matty and strong. It was like being inside some kind of body there. It felt animal love. The rock overhangs in the winter, how icicles would make off them great scary masses, the rocks making faces, angry and beautiful. I feel closest in spring, before the leaves came all the way out, when the mountains show their hope with little color patches, Red bud and dogwood, dogwood and red bud, the roll of the words in your mouth. And if you look real close, how all the leaves are tightly curled, bulging just a little beyond bud. Leaf weight, I'd call it. And inside them, right before they bust out, you see what looks like a feather. And that was beautiful. I had asked you to pick a passage that really resonated with you about uh, what it means to be Appalachian or what it means, what Appalachian means to you. Can you elaborate a little bit more about why it was that passage you chose? I think I chose that passage because it's very complicated to be Appalachian, and there there are many hard parts about being Appalachian. There are difficult parts and sad parts, but there are also glorious parts, and I think that I wanted to read a passage today that really opened us up into the light of Appalachia, which for me, in addition to the people, is the land here. Right. And I understand environmental issues, those topics really resonate with you in your writing and have inspired a lot of your writing. Why are those issues something that compelled you to want to become a writer and write this novel? I think that one reason that West Virginia literature and Appalachian literature can be so powerful is because of the very fraught relationship we have with the land here. Because we, Appalachians still have a natural connection to the land. And we are told and we recognize how beautiful the place is here. But we also grown up in a culture that has told us at the same time, yeah, it's beautiful but we have to sacrifice that in order for people to make a living. So I think that means that Appalachians often have a pretty strong love-hate relationship with the place and a joy and grief relationship, so it's paradoxical. So you wrote this novel in 2007, and we're in a different 
political climate right now in 2023. At the time you wrote the novel versus to now, has anything changed, improved, gotten worse in your own observations and opinions? Yeah, it's a very different time now. When I was researching and writing the novel, it was in the early 2000s. There was a very strong anti-mountaintop removal movement. And we believed that we'd make a difference, that we would actually get mountaintop removal stopped. And in some places we did, and there were there was progress that was made. And there's a poem by Mark Harshman, which I adore, called What I've Seen. And in one stanza, he names several of those activists, like Judy Bonds, like, like Larry Gibson. And then he's, I'm going to misquote him, but he says, more failures than victories, but as long as their memories are entwined with ours, there's kindling. So at this point in West Virginia history and in the situation in the nation, which, is, which has gotten so much more divided and more violent and more authoritarian since I was writing this book, where I got to go now with my writing is into a place where I and others can start imagining and putting into action a different vision for how we relate to the natural world. Can you talk a little bit more about how you see the weight of your name and your work bringing that vision to a reality? I don't have a solution for the economics and politics in West Virginia. What I want to explore in the next book is in three parts. And the first part is what happens to people's minds and their hearts and their souls when they go through the destruction of their home, the natural world around them. And I'm drawing partly on the work of philosopher Glenn Albrecht. He's an Australian eco-psychologist who coined the term solastalgia, which he developed after doing research on people around uh, open pit mines in Australia. And on solastalgia's experience of watching your home place be destroyed, watching what your, your own place be destroyed, um, and what that does to you psychologically. And there has been research by Michael Hendricks in southern West Virginia about the mental health of those people who've had to live around those mines. So proceeding from that, in this book that I'm working on now, I want to talk about the, how mental health, mental illness, and addiction may be related to a lot of the devastation that we've had here. And then importantly, towards the end of a book, how do we transcend that? How do we live with that? And so it's less a vision about the economics or politics of West Virginia, but the soul of West Virginia, the psychology of West Virginia, and how we survive, how we, are, we remain human beings. Because that's one thing that Appalachia and West Virginia, we still have very humane qualities. I've lived a lot of places, and this for me, of course it's my home, but is one of the places where there's still so much humanity. That was West Virginia author Ann Pancake speaking with Liz McCormick. Pancake is the 2023 Appalachian Heritage Writer-in-Residence at Shepherd University. Appalachia is full of spooky stories and folklore. Pittsburgh artist Genevieve Barbie Turner channels some of that into tarot decks. Inside Appalachia's Mason Adams spoke with Barbie Turner and brings us this. 20 years ago, you made a move from a coastal city to Pittsburgh. What attracted you to that area? 
my mother is from Pittsburgh. And so I had visited uh, actually Natrona Heights many, many times as a kid. And so uh, when I was looking at universities, um, I knew that I did not want to go to a major city. Pittsburgh was familiar to me. I just decided uh, I'll apply to Carnegie Mellon. Uh, once I moved here, um, I I remember vividly uh, taking the 54C into the South Side and seeing how the hills were just dotted with all of these beautiful lights. And it felt like, I don't know, like the sky had just descended, you know, in a way that I'd never seen it before. It was just Pittsburgh is so beautiful. It is such a beautiful place to me. Um, and I just fell in love with its crooked, weird streets and its, uh, you know, iconic neighborhoods and just how unique, I mean, there is no other city that is like Pittsburgh. Um, and so I, there was just never really a reason to leave. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I graduated college in 2007 and with a major in art, uh, and kind of had a pretty good idea that I was going to, you know, fund my art habit by working in a variety of different jobs. And this seemed like the best place to do it. How did you get started making tarot decks? I studied uh, painting, drawing, and printmaking at CMU and specifically printmaking. Uh, why am I talking about that? Why is that related to cards? Well, I love this idea of the serial image. Um, and it's, it's sort of what kind of attracted me to printmaking in the first place. Um, and then I um, really kind of discovered what my art practice was. I started making art every single day. And one of those things was a project called That's What You're Good At. And I would ask people, uh, like, what is what is something that you're good at? You know, and I would draw them doing that thing. And I just had this flash of like, this would be so cool as like a deck of cards. Uh, and tarot is something that just automatically, you know, um, revealed itself to me. I, um, you know, if you're familiar with the tarot, the major arcana starts with zero. It doesn't start with one, it starts with zero, which is the fool card. And then the rest of the cards really is uh, evidence of the journey of the fool through all of these major ideas of the major arcana. So, uh, you know, uh, I, I think about it in my head, like the fool meets the magician and what does the fool learn from the magician? And, you know, the, the fool experiences death and like what, you know, what happens after that. Um, and I saw this uh, opportunity to use tarot as a medium to kind of talk about the things that I wanted to talk about, which led me to create Bridge Witches, a tarot deck. Would you mind walking through the tarot decks you've designed so far? So when I created Bridge Witches, I knew that it there was no way that I could put all of the stories that I wanted to put in there. So I actually designed it with the idea that I would constantly be updating it. So uh, the first one, um, I oh my gosh, I really put myself through it with that one because, and this is what happens a lot. I'll constantly be thinking, is it tarot enough? Is it Pittsburgh enough? Is it this enough? Is it that enough? I divided each of the suits into the four directions of the city. Uh, so, uh, and I changed the suits a little bit. So instead of swords, it was fences. And in the fences suit, uh, which would be swords in a traditional tarot deck, um, it was all the north side and it was all winter, right? So north side, north hills, right? So I put things in. Um, and I would ask people, I'd be like, what's a, what's a place like, you know, the, where you grew up or something. Um, and I actually am friends with my current state rep and hopeful County executive, Sarah Ann Morado, because she's from uh, that area. She grew up in like the Millvale kind of area. So I asked her all these questions about it and she was like, oh, you should put this one uh, place that like nobody ever thinks about, like that I just love. That's like this fake little doorway that kind of goes into nothing. Uh, and I was like, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. So I would have all these deep cuts from people that grew up here just wandering around Pittsburgh. That was Pittsburgh artist Genevieve Barbie Turner speaking with Mason Adams. 
You can hear the rest of that interview on our website at wvpublic.org. That's it for West Virginia Week. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you back here next week. As always, you can see these stories and more at wvpublic.org. I'm Chris Schultz.